Welcome to the DTV podcast for September 2023, volume 61, number nine. Uh, my name is David Fazakli. I'm DTV's deputy editor. Hello, uh, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Thanks again for joining us for this podcast. And we'll be talking about the content of the September issue of DTB. Um, I just had a quick question for you, James, to start off with, uh, not related to the issue particularly this month, but but just picking up one of the bits of noise around the system at the moment, particularly related to semiglutide. Um, and there have been news reports of people with diabetes struggling to get hold of their regular supplies because it's being allegedly diverted for weight loss management. Have you encountered any problems with that in your area? We, I, I personally haven't. Um, our pharmacy hasn't seemed to have had any issues um, getting hold of it at the moment. But I am aware that there have been um, instructions sort of across actually the whole of the UK that as much as possible. In fact, I even believe that private clinics that do obesity management are not taking on any new patients for semaglutide. Obviously, there are other treatments available that these um, clinics sometimes use, but I'm aware that uh, many of them have actually stopped taking on new patients because of concerns about um, the the restrictions in its use. Um, yeah, because of lack of stock. And it's not surprising the, the, the use of it has absolutely... Um, exponentially risen, I think, because of the interest in it uh, as an anti-obesity drug. I mean, interestingly, and it actually came out today, was the, the press release from uh, Nevo Nordisk about their SELECT study, which is um, looking at its semaglutide use for prevention of cardiovascular events in uh, people who've not got diabetes and a large study but all we've got at the moment is is a press release that gives us the bare bones but what it seems to suggest or what they're suggesting is that you know of a trial of 17,000 people followed up I think they were treated for five years they're claiming that there's a 20% difference between the groups in terms of major adverse cardiovascular events and I think by that they meant cardiovascular death non-fatal MI non-fatal stroke um, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, it, it's very interesting, isn't it? Obviously, this is not peer-reviewed yet, so um, it's always difficult to know uh, what the nitty-gritty will show. But, it, I mean, if the, if the headlines are, as they suggest, without a sting in the tail, this is going to be um, a remarkable, remarkable drug. And I think the other element to this, obviously, was I think the follow-up was at least four or five years in the patient. So we've now got a study that's been giving people semaglutide for that length of time who don't have diabetes. Um, so we'll hopefully have some good ideas of sort of possible adverse events and adverse effects that might occur in people taking it for longer term. But yes, remarkable um, results if they are the case. And, and it, you know, it is interesting that um, is obesity going to become another condition um, I hesitate to say disease because I, I personally feel that that is unhelpful. Um, but is it going to become another CKD, hypertension, uh, obesity that, that we manage by prolonged use of drugs, which just add to the sort of polypharmacy burden that already um, many patients are under? What annoyed me as with all these press releases is A, it's a press release, but B, it's got so little detail that 
what what are we meant to make of it? You know, a twenty percent difference between the groups is a relative risk reduction. We don't know what the absolute differences are. It makes no reference to um, numerically in terms of adverse events, and it gives no detail on uh, weight changes between the groups. So while I appreciate they have to release these for kind of financial reasons, uh, they are more, irritate, more irritating than they are helpful, I think. I mean, clearly we'll come back to it when the study is, is out and, and, and published um, and we'll kind of crawl over it and see what it actually says. But mm. uh, yes, just another one that slightly annoyed me at the moment. Yeah, exactly. And of course, um, the press will be, will be I'm sure, um, all over it tomorrow and won't better help themselves, but actually make more of it perhaps than it is. And there'll be conflicted people standing up and saying that you know this that and the other and it just it just creates this uh, very i think uh non if you like non-medical atmosphere it becomes a commodity um and i think when drugs become commodities things often go pear-shaped right well let's let's wait for them for more details but we will come back to, to this one so let's move on let's go to your editorial uh this one's called Redaction at the Heart of Nice Appraisals, which might be a bit of a plot spoiler, but um, James, take it away. <laughs> yeah, so um, anyone who perhaps follows me on Twitter will know that I've uh, actually put up some pictures of some of the redacted graphs that find their way into nice technical appraisals. This has been sort of bugging me for a while, so I've actually thought it'd be quite useful to highlight this by actually following the um, technical appraisal history, if you like, of one particular drug called semiplumab, which is um, a drug for advanced cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. Uh, this was first um, looked at as a technical appraisal in 2019 by NICE, and there were so lots of uncertainty around whether this drug was any good, but they felt that it had some plausible potential. So NICE recommended its use with the Cancer Drug Fund. And as people perhaps don't know, if if NICE feels there is a drug with some plausible potential, they can um, set up a managed access agreement together with the NHS and the pharmaceutical company with two key components. One is that there will be data collection arrangements set out to try and deliver the outcomes that are needed to answer the questions about whether this drug is of any value and secondly there's a commercial agreement which is set out in confidence about the price of the drug during that managed access time which is usually about three years so nice three years later 2022 published its uh, new updated technical appraisal where it approved semiplumab um, on the basis that whilst actually there was still significant uncertainty on the survival estimates and um, best supportive care they thought it probably did improve life expectancy so in june 2022 when that came out um i i i wrote to them and said oh can i have um information about the the evidence you used and i was directed to their evidence um website and in particular the committee papers and on the committee papers everything was redacted that actually gave you any idea about things like um, survival times. So I contacted the, the the company concerned and asked them if they could share this data with me and they felt they couldn't because this data was part of their Empower study and they hadn't published that yet and therefore there were academic issues around confidentiality. So I you know, kept on going and said, well, when is this going to be published? And it was 
unclear to me and is still unclear to me whether there is any requirement for drug companies who've used evidence based from research in NICE appraisals to get their uh, evidence published. And I, and I think the answer is there isn't. So if this had never been published, then I would never have seen the evidence. As it was, it was published um, at a European Society of Medical Oncology conference. And um, so I was able to see the Empower uh, results. And I approached NICE therefore and said, can I now have a look under the Freedom of Information, your committee papers, unredacted? And they actually said, no, I'm sorry, because of the cost of doing that um, would exceed a reasonable limit, which is set out by the FIFOI Act. Um, they wouldn't. So we still don't actually have any access to, to NICE's um, information that they used to, to look at semiplumab. And wh when I was looking into this, I discovered that over 80% of NICE's technical appraisals are redacted in some way or other, with a quarter heavily so. And I just looked at a few. There's Vutriceran, which is a drug for amyloidosis that had a technical appraisal in February 2023. Redactions, full of redactions, whole pages of the important tables. If I was a patient or a clinician using this drug, just redacted. Likewise, ninentinimab, sorry, nintinanib for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, redacted. Samatragon, which is a treatment for growth um, disorder in children for three and over. Change in height table for them from the main phase three pivotal study. The one thing you want to know all redacted. Um, and I just think it's unacceptable for NICE to be redacting information they've used to decide whether a drug should be used uh, in the NHS. I think clinicians need to know this information. And I don't understand why if a drug company wants its drug to be used by the NHS, NICE should simply say it's very simple. Any evidence you provide to us will have to be in the public arena. You, know, you can decide how you therefore set out your information to give to us, but we will have to say to you, it's got to be in the public arena. And the whole problem goes away. But at the moment, there is enormous amount of reduction. Now, in fairness to NICE, I gather they have recently issued a joint statement with two other national drug appraisal agencies, I think one in Canada, um, that they are going to no longer routinely redact data that is awaiting publication. So it may be that the academic issue will be better. But there is nothing in it about whether there'll be any issue around redaction for commercial reasons. And it does seem to me that it's actually that it's the pharmaceutical companies that are in the driving seat here and uh, can simply say they want information redacted for, for commercial reasons. So I think it needs to change. And in fairness to NICE, I think they do recognise that. But I just think this needs to be highlighted. And I would ask anyone who wants to understand a drug that they're either going to prescribe or are going to be prescribed to just to contact NICE and say, can I look at the data and just get them to understand how important it is. Um, because it is it, a lot of these drugs now, there's a lot of um, accelerated um, approvals. There's this move to a proportionate approach by NICE, which means faster and faster technical appraisals being brought out. And I think we do need to understand that the, the evidence behind them. And is that your main beef? I mean, the, the fact that it's important to be able to sort of look under the bonnet and see see some of the information? I mean, or 
do you think you, me, are unusual in that we would want to look at this data, but for most people, they'll just be happily accept the, the kind of key recommendations and they won't need to, need to look at it? I think you're right. And I think this goes... This goes to the heart of all guidance and and these sorts of things. There's a risk that people don't understand the background to the recommendations given. I think there's a risk that people imagine that recommendations are digital. By that, I mean, this recommendation is either a yes or a no, and it's got the same value. Actually, recommendations are analog. You can have some recommendations that are 100%. You know, this is so so clear and other recommendations you get from technical appraisals and from um, from guidelines where actually it's it's much less it's almost actually what's happened is they've looked around the room and said well come on gang let's flip a coin almost let's let's decide as a, as a committee what we think and that's no more valid than you sitting down with your patient across or beside the desk and saying what do you think how do you want to do this do you want this drug or don't you and that's the issue for me is that unless you can see the data actually right at the very heart of this, you might only want to look at it one time in 10 or even less, but it's got to be available. Otherwise, we just create this, this mystique that this drug is effective because a technical appraisal has said it's so. But actually, if you then look under the bonnet, as you say, and you discover that there was some element to the decision, which is now no longer valid two years down the line for whatever reason, you know, you don't know that actually this this appraisal is no longer perhaps relevant to you as a patient or as a clinician. So it's just got to be clear, hasn't it? I mean, the whole the whole basis of the doctor patient relationship. And I think my concern is that actually NICE is no longer focused on the clinician and the patient. It's focused on the pharmaceutical company uh, and the NHS as an organizational thing i think that's that's another issue here is um i've just received an invitation to go to nice's conference this year and what's fascinating is in the drop down menu of the options of who you are when you want to go there isn't an option for a clinician <laughs> there's an option for all kinds of other organizations but as a clinician you don't have an option and i think that just to me smacks of how much nice has taken its eye off the importance of clinicians in delivering good healthcare. Yes, and, and you're right, isn't it? It's the context that you need to be able to understand in order to apply some some decisions. Many, as you say, will be will you won't need that level of detail, but for some, having that contextualised data, uh, if you can access it, would be helpful. But I, I agree with you. There's nothing more dispiriting than trying to flick your way through a, a, a nice evidence review to find that there are huge chunks of it that are, are you, you just can't read because it's all been all been blocked out. Uh, and somehow it seems slightly wrong, doesn't it, that for a publicly funded organisation that is providing advice to the public, including healthcare professionals, that that information isn't, isn't readily available. It just seems so counterintuitive. And I, yeah, yeah. I've, I've said I've said enough. Okay, okay. So I'm so, slightly, slightly worried that my analogy of the car, looking under the car bonnet, is slightly wrong with modern cars. When you look under there, and it's all black boxes anyway. But uh, well, it's perfect. It's a perfect analogy. There are yes. just black boxes inside. Nice guidance. You can't do anything with. Right. Okay. Let's let's move on. Let's look at one of our select items this month. Uh, and this was a study, a UK study that 
looked at the use of spironolactone to treat acne in women. James, do you want to give a bit more detail? Yeah, so this is this is interesting. Uh, for some time now, there has been some advice that you might want to consider using spironolactone for the treatment of acne in women. It's an aldosterone receptor antagonist, but it does have some anti-angiogen activity. And there is a US clinical guideline that was published around 2016, which suggested it might be an off-label option to treat some women. So this is a UK-based double-blind randomized controlled trial, which compared spironolactone with placebo in women over 18 years of age who had acne, which was severe enough to warrant treatment with oral antibiotics and whose symptoms had been present for six months. And they used initially a dose of 50 milligrams daily orally and then increased it to 100 milligrams daily at six weeks if it was well tolerated. Um, only small study, 410 women. So it's not, not a big study by any means. And the outcome was was quite weak in the sense that at 12 weeks, they used an acne quality of life uh, scale, which had a minimum clinical important difference of two. That's to say that you had to have a difference of two for it to be meaningful rather than just statistically significant. So at 12 weeks, the, the score was statistically significant, but was less than two, so less than the mean um, the minimum clinically important difference, the MCID. But at 24 weeks, the difference between the two groups did exceed that minimum clinical important difference, suggesting that it might be an option. So uh, there it is. Um, BAD, the British Association of Dermatologists, have published a patient information leaflet on it. So um, there's some information there. So it's not a, not a game changer. Um, but uh, it is certainly perhaps an off-label option to be considered in, in some women. I mean, it's interesting that um, just looking at some of the, the figures where it was, I think the baseline score, because this is a 30-point scale, wasn't it, this one that they, they looked at or they used, and at baseline it was, th I think the score was 13, and then in both groups it went, went up. Um, I think in the, the yeah. treatment group it was 19 and in the placebo group it was around 18 which gave you that small difference but as you say it got bigger at the difference got bigger at 24 weeks um though interestingly people rated it they were satisfied with treatment um, patient satisfaction was what something like 71 percent against 43 percent at 24 weeks and clinicians were happy with it so clearly it it did something uh i didn't, didn't know whether how it compares with other active treatments for, for acne. Um, but do you think it's, I mean, it's unlicensed or it would be an off-label use? The, the paper seemed to, the authors were suggesting this is a, an option to reduce the use of antibiotics in, in acne, clearly concerns over you know, overusing antibiotics. But can you see this being routinely used? Is it likely to be a, a drug that you would happily prescribe or would, would you be wary? Uh, yes, I mean, I, I don't I don't quite, obviously they've not compared it with antibiotics, which would be the next step you might consider in these situations. So would I consider using this? I don't think so. I mean, obviously there is an element of it perhaps having benefit with hirsutism as well. So I suppose there might be an, a place, once again, off-label. I think this just is an interesting study. It highlights, if you like, if people come across this, 
but it's a small study and a small study shouldn't change your your life it'd be interesting to see where where it goes next isn't it because if if this suggests that there is a benefit will larger studies follow and what will other comparators be um and then will will any company be interested in licensing it well and of course it, it, spinolactone is no longer in patent so I, who's going to benefit from trying to organize a, a bigger study um so unfortunately unless one of the the big sort of national organizations that does trials feels it's worth doing i don't think we'll see much more okay well, let's watch this space see what see where that one goes um and then let's move on to our our main review article this month which looks at drugs with anticholinergic activity um, obviously something that's been kind of picked up over the last few years as a, an area of concern do you want to do you want to give a bit more detail yeah this is a great um overview of anticholinergic drugs or anticholinergic activity in drugs um and it's it's great because it, it covers lots of the sort of question marks about this it talks about the long-term association of anticholinergic activity in drugs with cognitive function decline, dementia, um, even premature mortality. Um, and we're talking here not only about drugs that use their anticholinergic activity as, as their main uh, action for treating patients, but also on those drugs that have anticholinergic activity as a side effect. We're talking about antidepressants, drugs used for urinary frequency, drugs for Parkinson's disease, anti-epileptics, um, the full range. And I think what's what's fascinating is that the authors point out that in a survey in England in 2011, about 10% of over 65-year-olds were found to be on drugs with potential anticholinergic effects. So this is quite a significant issue, or it certainly was in 2011. Um, that obviously is more than 10 years ago now. And I think this issue is one that certainly a lot of the de-prescribing activity that's been going on at practice level has been addressing. So that may be better now. Um, but I think uh, the article not only reviews the evidence of drug effects on cognition, but it looks at the concept of anticholinergic burden. It looks at some of the risk scales that we use. There's ACB, the anticholinergic cognitive burden, there's AEB, the anticholinergic effect on cognition scale, lots of different scales. And I think what's particularly interesting for me was it looked at actually a big UK uh, biobank based cohort longitudinal analysis over six years, cohort of over half a million patients, which compared or looked at each of those different scales. Um, and I think the, the point that it showed was that depending on which scale you used, depending on actually how many patients in that group were thought to be taking anticholinergic drugs. And it was between 8 and 18%, um, depending on the scale. So I think that's, for me, one of the problems as a clinician is which of these scales is most relevant to us um, and uh, which drugs are most important for us to consider. And of course, at the same time, it's some of these drugs are important to patients. They, you know, they are having benefit from them. So it's having to weigh up the, the pros and cons of their use and what's your individual approach you know how would you uh, deal with drugs with anticholinergic activity do, do you actively look for them or do you have systems that flash them up and say well this is, this is of concern yeah i mean for sure i mean i have to say that i am very nervous about a lot of anticholinergic drugs particularly for urinary frequency and incontinence i mean when i when i started general practice 
patients would be on huge numbers of these, often on two or three different ones. And in my experience, when you ask patients um, whether they benefited from this drug, they would actually forgotten what it was for and wouldn't be sure. So for me, at every drug review, it's about what are these drugs for? What you, how are you benefiting from them? And if you're not sure you're benefiting from them, let's try a drug holiday. Doesn't mean we get stay off it for good. Just try a drug holiday, see if you um, need to be on them still. Um, I think where there's difficulty for me and where I struggle is the use of things like amitriptyline for chronic pain. Um, this is much more difficult because we are increasingly hamstrung with what we can use for chronic pain in the way of therapeutics. And sometimes you stop these drugs and actually it takes six months and then patients return saying actually that facial pain or whatever it might have been, that neuralgia has come back. So um, they can be difficult, but I think any drug, particularly um, an anticholinergic drug, you should always be testing out whether it's still needed. And it's remarkable how often it can be stopped. And is this a discussion you would routinely have with, with patients? Totally. Um, and, and these days, even before you, you start now, I mean, um, even that there are even some patients who, for example, take some uh, antihistamines almost long term. Um, and that was, I think, a, something that was quite common a few years ago. And, you know, you have to start having discussions with patients and explaining to them. And usually when they recognize that this could have an impact on their cognitive function, you know, and, and you have to be you have to be wary because you don't want to scare people here. But actually, you just say, look, how how much of a benefit is this to you? Why don't you try without it? You might find that actually, it's it's not so important. I had a patient recently, literally, who was taking ipratropium bromide um, and amitriptyline and domperidone. So if you use one of those scoring systems, that's a score of five, which is considered to be high high risk. Um, and each of them were for sort of really quite minor little things that they've been on for a long time, a little bit of nasal issue, a little bit of indigestion or issues with their stomach. And, and all of them actually, you know, really didn't have a big therapeutic uh, benefit for the patient. So, you know, it was possible to stop all of them. And long term, do you think this is a, a, something that will then automatically be built into kind of prescribing systems oh i hope not because <laughs> i was the amount of warnings we get now when you try and prescribe something um and i had some some i was trying to prescribe something yesterday i think it was a beta blocker and the for someone who developed atrial fibrillation and up came a warning that this patient had bradycardia and okay they'd had bradycardia many years ago but but of course, they can't age for relation now. So unless they get smarter and can actually be properly focused on the patient, they just create enormous noise. And the risk is you just shut yourself off from it. And therefore, the really important time it should be shouting at you, you, you ignore it. So um, I, hope, I hope if it's going to be like that, it's got to be really focused and really really good because there's too much noise at the moment for prescribing it's incredibly hard to prescribe you know we've got a lot of new prescribers coming um out of the woodwork quite rightly to help support uh, primary and secondary care um but we need to make the support for them to prescribe safely much much better because at the moment all it does is just throw up a whole lot of questions that actually don't need to have been thrown up in the first place okay thank you very much um you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtp.com.
bmj.com. Uh, all our previous podcasts are also listed there. If you want to get involved with DTB, please let us know. Uh, contact us or email us at dtb at bmj.com. Very pleased to have your comments, uh, suggestions for articles or feedback in general. So many thanks for listening and we hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time for the October 23 podcast. <music>